This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners, to another episode. This is Paxton Bach. I'm your co-host this week, coming to you from Vancouver, BC. And we have a familiar face joining us this week. We have Dr. Kieran Quinn returning out of uh, partial retirement. Kieran, good to have you back. Thanks, Paxton. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Really excited to be here today. I'm calling you from the basement of my house in Toronto. Oh, well, how's life treating you these days? Very well, very well. Life is good. This summer is passing us by here in Canada, but uh, it's been a good one and things are coming along nicely. No complaints. Lots more time on your hands, I suppose. But let's move on from the small talk, true to form. We're going to dive right into it. And you're going to lead us off today with an article that's near and dear to your heart. So uh, tell us what we're going to talk about. Absolutely. So Dr. Tino and her group published this just recently in JAMA in July of 2018. And it's a really neat study that looks and describes the changes in end-of-life care over time that are occurring in the United States, and specifically looking at some of the key indicators of death around where people die, where they get their care, and how many times they're moved back and forth in the healthcare system as they approach their end of life. So they're really they're giving us a snapshot of the last 15 years then of, of what's actually happening to these patients. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. So uh, tell us, what is the bottom line here to this article then? So Paxton, Dr. Tino conducted a retrospective cohort study of just over 1.3 million Medicare patients who died. And what they found was that the site of care changed between 2000 and 2015 from predominantly acute care hospitals to the community. And the proportion of deaths that occurred in acute care hospitals decreased by almost 20%. So these are promising findings. The accompanying editorial calls it a glass half full. And despite the advances in modern medicine, which we've seen that are allowing people to live longer, develop more diseases, become more medically complex, our healthcare systems seem to be meeting, or at least are heading in the right direction to meet their desires to be cared for and die at home and outside of our acute care hospitals. Wow, so that's a pretty big undertaking. That seems to be an encouraging finding then, I think. So maybe you'll tell us a little bit more about that. Um, Why did you choose this article personally? Well, as you said, it's near and dear to my heart. So first, it's a study about end-of-life care, and this study made it into one of the biggest journals in the world. How could I possibly resist covering it on my inauguration as a co-host on the show? Second, it's a descriptive study of all things that gets into one of the biggest journals in the world. So rare these days, but so satisfying to see just what is happening in our healthcare system. So I thought it would be interesting to know and talk about it on the show. And lastly, as I alluded to a little bit in the bottom line, dying in the 21st century is different than it was in the 20th century and in the 19th century. This is largely driven by changes in advances in medical and surgical care. Dying is expensive, and a lot of efforts through policymakers and policy interventions have been made to try to improve care at the end of life. And these include in trying to enhance access to hospice and palliative care. And people don't just want longevity anymore. They want quality in their life as they come to the end of it. And part of that, for many individuals will report, is to receive care and die in their own homes. And so Dr. Tino wanted to look at the question is, are we actually achieving that on a system level in light of these policy initiatives over time? Hmm. So that's a pretty compelling setup, I think. So let's get right into the paper itself then. Describe quickly to us what the design was of this paper, how they actually addressed this question. Right. So they looked at a cohort of Medicare patients using administrative data in the United States. And they took a random sample of 20% of the Medicare patients aged 66 and over who were in the last year of their life. 
and who died in the year 2000, in the year 2005, 2009, 2011, and 2015. So giving a snapshot over a 15-year time period of how dying in the U.S. and care for people uh, close to death uh, have changed over time in that 15-year time period. Uh, so taking advantage of a pretty massive database then. Yeah, that's right. There's about 44 million people enrolled in Medicare in the U.S., and so it presents a powerful opportunity to study healthcare. And what was the actual question that they were looking at within using this data? Yeah, so because it was a descriptive study, they just wanted to examine and report secular changes in dying, that is how dying is changing over time in the U.S. in that 15-year time period. And what were the real, like the data points and what were the primary questions that they were looking at within that data? Yeah, this is interesting because it's not really reported per se as you would within more of an analytical study to say what is the primary outcome. But their first and foremost focus of interest was the site of death. And this is in many different healthcare systems being defined as a quality indicator of a quote unquote good death. So we try to allow people to die where they want to. So they're looking at site of death and where that occurs. And then they looked at a variety of measures of pattern of healthcare usage in the last three months and the last month of life. In the U.S., there's a lot of hospice services available. It's not so prevalent in Canada and other countries, but hospice service is a big area for care at end of life in the U.S. They also looked at hospitalizations, intensive care use. And then they also looked at another area of sort of quality indicators and value in our healthcare system as potentially burdensome healthcare transitions. Now, these have been described in many different ways by different researchers, but in this study, they looked at specifically transitions between healthcare settings in the last three days of life, whether individuals had three or more hospitalizations in the last three months of their life, or whether they had hospitalizations specifically for episodic infectious illnesses like pneumonia or urinary tract infection or sepsis in the last four months of life. And finally, they wanted to look at mechanical ventilation use that was prolonged, which they defined as greater than or equal to four days during a hospitalization in which the patient actually died, so a terminal hospitalization. So kind of neat and important outcomes that this descriptive study uh, examined. Yeah, that sounds like a whole host of pretty important descriptors around that end-of-life period. So let's get into the results then. What were the main findings? What did they pull out of this? Yeah, so the patients themselves, there wasn't a lot of description of exactly, you know, what the patients looked like. And that was limited somewhat by the availability of what's in the databases. So, for example, we don't know their cause of death. It's not reported in the Medicare databases. But your typical patient in this study would be who you would expect is at the end of their life. Individuals in their early 80s. 50% were female. We know that females have a tendency to live a little bit longer than men and predominantly white, reflecting the overall general population of the U.S. And so what they principally found with regards to their outcomes, that in the year 2000, about a third of individuals died in an acute hospital. And then compare that in 2015, where the numbers come down to about 20%. So you have a significant reduction in people who are dying in an acute hospital. If you look back to the 1980s, about half of individuals actually were dying in hospitals at that time. So it's come a long way as far as where people are dying. A quarter of the population dies in a nursing home. That didn't actually change over time. But what did change significantly was hospice use. And so that increased from about 22% in 2000 to close to 50% in 2015. So more than doubling of the rate of hospice use. Okay. And what about the other outcomes that you described them looking at? 
Yeah, so they looked at hospitalization, an area of interest that I have. This is where it kind of gets interesting. It, it actually increased from about 63% in the year 2000 of individuals were hospitalized. It went up to 69% in 2009 and then started to fall again and comes down to about 65% of individuals who were hospitalized in the last three months of their life in 2015. There were also less healthcare transitions, about half as many in the last three months of life between individuals who were in a nursing home and brought to hospital. And those are some important metrics when they're looking at sort of quality of care delivered by nursing homes. Hmm. So these results are interesting to me because we spend so much time talking about the, the lack of beds in our hospitals and the fact that this is a huge problem. But this suggests that we are making at least some progress in the area then, does it not? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would think so. The, the numbers look promising. Of course, as the accompanying editorial nicely points out, you can look at these numbers as a glass half full or a glass half empty, right? We are making progress. People report that they want to die at home more often, and we're certainly lowering the numbers in 2015. But remember that if, for example, 90 or 100% of people want to die at home, we're finding that roughly 20% are still dying in hospitals. And so, you know, if it's a glass half full kind of approach, we still have a long way to go to achieve that goal. But I'm encouraged by this study to say we're making headway. Hmm. Wow, that's quite fascinating. Anything else you wanted to point out then about this study? And, and Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's an extension of what we were just talking about. The numbers are certainly fascinating. But I still kind of wonder, and the more I, I learn about this area and, you know, conduct research of my own, what are we actually aiming for as a society and a system when it comes to, let's say, for example, the proportion of people who die at home? How many people actually want that? You know, there's one thing to say that I want that, but then when push comes to shove and you're really sick, do you actually want to die at home? And how many people can actually achieve that? Some people just whose care requirements are, exceed what is capable of being provided in a home. And so I, I don't actually know what a realistic goal as a system and a society that we're moving towards is. That's the question that jumps to mind with me is, you know, it seems to be a positive thing that we're moving that dial and moving the needle such that more people are going to hospice. But I expect that there's some people that even if they say when they're well that they would like to die at home, that really when it comes down to it, do choose hospital for good reasons. So that would be very interesting to know more about what people actually want at the end of their life. Yeah, and, and I think that's important to keep in mind, too, when we're talking about trying to reduce costs of dying or costs at the end of life is that, you know, I think we should be aiming for quality of care. And if it costs less as a consequence, that's great, but it may not actually. And that may be a reality we have to face as well. Uh, any, any limitations you want to highlight quickly? Yeah, I, I think just probably the most important or I'll say maybe two most important things to talk about as far as limitations to this kind of a study First and foremost, we don't know what the patient preferences are. Again, this is still related to what we were talking about before. So we don't know if these numbers are truly good or bad in reflecting what patients actually want. And secondly, we don't know why these changes have occurred. Are they due to the multitude of policy interventions that have occurred over time? Or is it simply a societal shift, cultural shift in what people want and are then making their own decisions about where to have their health care delivered? This study does not seek to answer that question, but it's an important limitation to keep in mind. The last one, actually, the third one I wanted to just to mention was, remember, these patients are in the last year of their life, which we know only after the fact that they've died. Put yourself in the position as a physician of a patient who comes into hospital. Our algorithms for predicting death are poor at best. And so 
it can be difficult sometimes to know whether somebody should be transitioned from one place to another or should receive prolonged mechanical ventilation when you don't know necessarily that they are going to die on that hospitalization or within a few months. So Kieran, summarize this then for you. What is the real takeaway message for this paper and, and kind of what does it mean going forward? Well, Paxton, I think I agree with a glass half full approach. I think that the U.S. healthcare system, and it reflects a lot of what we see in Canada as well, and probably elsewhere around the world, that key quality indicators of what people would define as a quote-unquote good death are improving over time. We're getting closer to the mark. And this is despite a sicker and more medically complex population in which we can do a lot more to support life, so to speak, albeit not necessarily support quality of life with some of our interventions. More people are dying at home. Hospice use is increasingly utilized. These are all promising trends in our healthcare system. And remember, though, that still almost two-thirds of individuals are hospitalized during their last three months of life. Can this metric be improved? Or is this a necessity that we use to identify that someone is, in fact, dying? Uh, That is a question that still lingers in my mind and open lots of opportunity for neat uh, studies in the future. Yeah, I think this is a paper that's really worth highlighting on the show. I think it really does provide an important perspective. And thank Dr. Tino and thank you as well for all your work in such a really important area. All right, so moving on then to my article, we're going to change gears. Um, I've presented over the past few years quite a number of pretty large cardiovascular trials on the show, and we're going to do something similar today, but with a key difference. The article that I wanted to talk about today was published in JAMA Open Source Journal in July of this year, and it's entitled The Infective Intermittent Compared with Continuous Energy-Restricted Diet on Glycemic Control in Patients with Type 2 Diabetes. Uh, Well, I am waiting to see where the cardiovascular spin on this is, uh, but then why don't you tell us, Paxton, what is the bottom line for this article? So the bottom line in this article is that in a single-center trial, an intermittent calorie restriction strategy of just five to 600 calories per day on two non-consecutive days per week was non-inferior to a traditional continuous energy restriction diet strategy of between 1,200 to 15 calories a day at reducing hemoglobin A1C levels. Neat. So we're looking at dietary restriction, not for weight loss, but actually for glycemic control. That's kind of a neat twist. Tell me, Paxson, why did you actually choose this article and bring it to the rounds table today? So the reason that I put forward this article today is, as I said, I've talked a lot about different medications coming out in the cardiovascular world, but we haven't spent much time on the show talking about lifestyle changes. So a question that I get quite commonly, both from patients as well as just friends and family who, who know what I do, is what do you think of this new diet? And there's so many diets have come across our, our radar over the years, but one that comes up quite frequently of late, I found, is this idea of intermittent fasting. Now, it does turn out that there is some data there on intermittent fasting as a diet strategy, uh, and that it may be effective in promoting weight loss in patients. And there's not a wealth of studies there, but there has been a signal on at least four or five different papers that this may be effective weight loss strategy. But no one has ever looked at other cardiovascular markers, such as the control of uh, A1C and type 2 diabetics. So this study doesn't look at intermittent fasting specifically. It looks at what is strictly speaking intermittent calorie restriction, but it focuses specifically on the effect of this eating pattern in the management of blood sugar levels. Yeah, no, I think that's a really neat twist on, you know, not just conducting a study on calorie restrictions and calorie changes for for weight, but actually for a different and extremely important outcome. So why don't you take us through it then, Paxton? What was the design of this study? 
So uh, this study, as I mentioned, was a single center trial. It took place at the University of Australia, and it was a randomized non-inferiority trial. The patients that were enrolled, the enrollment criteria were quite broad, uh, adults over 18 years old with a previous diagnosis of type 2 diabetes and a BMI greater than 27 who were otherwise healthy. Exclusion criteria did include pregnancy, uncontrolled hypertension, or a previous history of bariatric surgery. All right, so we're looking at just a pretty all-comers kind of study in a relatively healthy population. We're not looking at the sick and older population who may not be able to complete this kind of a dietary intervention. Yeah, not necessarily. It's it's sort of all comers with few other comorbidities. Very pragmatic. So what was the primary question and how did they randomize these individuals? So what they ended up doing uh, with the, the patients that were enrolled were randomizing into one of two groups. And though that randomization was stratified both by gender as well as by BMI. The groups then were, were an intermittent energy restriction group as well as a continuous energy restriction group. So the intermittent energy restriction group followed a diet of about 500 to 600 kilocalories per day for two non-consecutive days of the week and could eat whatever they felt like for the other five days. Those were compared with a continuous energy restriction group that followed a diet of between 1,200 to 1,500 kilocalories per day. And this was based on a projected mean adult intake on average of about 2,100 kilocalories per day. So the total calories consumed by both groups per week should be approximately equal. So let's get practical then. Let's say my friend asks me about these kind of diets. Give me a typical diet, you know, on a restricted menu. So they do publish uh, an example of a sample menu in their supplemental materials. And their description of an example restricted menu would be, for instance, one serving of fruit and one small diet yogurt for breakfast, a small tin of tuna with a cup of salad for lunch, and about 100 grams of cooked chicken with minimal oil and about a cup and a half of low-carb veggies for dinner. So a pretty restricted diet, but, you know, you still do get three meals there. The last important thing to point out around the methods is that they did implement a medication management strategy to manage particularly insulin as well as sulfonylurea medications to prevent hypoglycemic episodes in these patients whose diets are changing fairly significantly. Yeah, clinically speaking, too, if you were going to apply this to one of your patients, that would be an important safety issue to keep track of. Okay, so um, tell me, Paxson, what were the primary outcomes then? What were they measuring as far as these different dietary strategies? So the primary outcomes were checked at baseline three months and 12 months. And as I've alluded to already, they're really looking at hemoglobin A1C as their number one thing. They did look at overall change in body weight as a secondary outcome and a number of exploratory outcomes, including daily step count, fasting glucose, fasting lipid levels, as well as a number of other ways of assessing weight loss. All right, Paxson. Admittedly, it's been a few months since my randomized trials class here in Toronto. Remind me again, what is a non-inferiority trial and, and how do they set those margins? Yeah, so this is an important point just to, to keep in mind that this is a non-inferiority trial. And as we've talked about before on the show, it's important to look at how they're defining equivalence in these trials because really, to a certain extent, the way they define equivalence it can be arbitrary. So in this particular trial, the predefined margin of equivalence when they set up the study for hemoglobin for equivalent A1C control was set at a 0.5% difference between the two groups. That's to say that when they looked at the results, if the difference between the two groups was less than 0.5%, they decided that that was safe to call them equivalent. 
Likewise, for weight loss, they defined a predefined margin of 2.5 kilos of weight loss. So I think those are reasonable measures of equivalence based on my clinical experience with regards to this question. Yeah, and if you would look at most pharmacological interventions as far as expected A1C lowering for diabetes, they're all within the range of 0.5 to 1% or so anyway. So I would agree it's a reasonable margin. Yeah, and then all other of the measures they looked at were all exploratory, so they weren't really able to predict differences, so only superiority tests were performed. Okay, an important caveat there. All right, so serve it up for us then, Paxson. What were the main findings of this particular trial? So it was a moderate-sized trial. They screened 195 patients and ultimately ended up enrolling 137 into the trial. There was slightly more females than males. The average age of the patients was 61. The mean BMI was quite large at 36, and they, on average, had diabetes for about eight years. Importantly, the mean hemoglobin A1c of the patients that were enrolled was 7.3. So their diabetes was actually quite well controlled when they were enrolling in the trial which I think is important to keep in mind when we interpret our results. All right, well, despite that, tell us a little bit more about what they found. So a couple other things to point out about patients enrolled is that 60% of them were on some kind of oral agent at baseline, mostly metformin. The second most common was sulfonylureas, and 20% of the patients were on insulin at baseline. Lastly, it's important to note that 70% of the participants completed this study with dropout rates, equivalent between both groups, but basically 30% between the two groups, which is quite high, but in, in these behavioral studies, you know, they are quite challenging. And I think a, a dropout rate of 30% is actually pretty reasonable uh, considering what they're asking their patients to do for a year. All right, Paxton, you've whet my appetite, even if the calories are restricted for it. Tell me what the A1C differences were for this trial. Okay, well, after uh, 12 months, the mean A1C decrease in the intermittent restriction group was negative 0.3%, and in the continuous restriction group was negative 0.5% for a difference between the two groups of 0.2%, which did meet that pre-specified non-inferiority margin that they defined of less than 0.5%. In other words, they did show the intermittent restriction group to be non-inferior to the continuous restriction group for A1C lowering. The decrease in A1C, not surprisingly, was more pronounced in patients who had a higher starting A1C compared to those that were better controlled in the beginning. What about some of the exploratory outcomes that they were looking at then? So importantly, while the difference in A1C was similar, as you see, it was quite minimal in terms of the change. And that's because uh, there was actually a marked decrease in the amount of medications that were taken in both groups over time as their glycemic control improved. So this may actually be a more meaningful outcome from the trial that what they called a mean medication effect score, which was a, a calculated value that was meant to summarize the total amount of medications that they were on. So their mean medication score decreased by 0.5% in both groups, which is approximately equivalent to 1,000 grams daily of metformin or a fairly significant uh, decrease in the amount of medication taken. Yeah, absolutely. That would be sort of like dropping one medication off your, your list, which would be fantastic. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the more meaningful results here. In terms of weight loss, the mean weight loss in the continuous restricted group was approximately 5 kilos, and it was 6.8 kilos in the intermittent fasting group. So statistically, there was no difference between those two numbers. But as we mentioned, the predefined margin for non-inferiority was 2.5 kilos. And because of the variability here, because of the width of the confidence interval, they couldn't actually say 
that the intermittent group achieved non-inferiority compared to the uh, continuous fasting group. So essentially what they're saying then is that, is that while there was no appreciable difference in weight loss between the two groups, technically according to the rules that they set out themselves, they can't actually say that continuous fasting is non-inferior to the continuous group. Um, it becomes difficult to make a comparison between the two based on the amount of variability. Right. It's the fact that your positive finding in this case is a negative finding, but they weren't able to confidently say that that was the case. It's just that the amount of variation masked your ability to have a confident uh, conclusion about non-inferiority in this case. Mm -hmm. It ends up being a wash. You can't say which one is better one way or the other, and you can't say they're equivalent. So Okay, so you had mentioned some other very interesting exploratory outcomes. Why don't you take us through a couple ones that you thought were neat? Yeah, a couple other small things that are worth noting, I think, is that the exploratory outcomes of both fasting glucose as well as lipids did improve with weight loss with no difference between the two groups and the more weight lost. Surprisingly, the, the better your lipids looked. And lastly, that patients who attended all of their scheduled visits with the dietitian did lose more than those who didn't attend their visits, with a, a difference of almost three and a half kilos between those two groups. Right. I wonder if that's a little bit more because those particular individuals are keener, following diets more closely, maybe are doing other things as far as exercise and things like that that might help them lose weight. Yeah, certainly there's a number of possible explanations, but I think that is pretty telling that there was that difference. Neat. Okay. Anything of particular interest you wanted to talk about for this trial? Yeah, I think first off, these are not easy trials to conduct when we're talking about these kind of behavioral changes. So even though the size of this trial was small compared to some of the other ones we've talked in the show, that the authors do deserve some credit because these are challenging things and they really did navigate it pretty well, I think. A few issues that are worth mentioning when you're interpreting these results. First and foremost is what you alluded to earlier on, that neither of the patient populations actually diaried what their intake was. So we really don't know how many calories were consumed. Now, they do discuss compliance in the discussion, and they note that, that compliance to the diets was quite good in the first month, and then it dropped off quite dramatically, such that less than 50% of people were deemed compliant to their diets after three months. But I'm not really clear on how that was measured. And you don't really know, for instance, in their cheat days, how many calories our fasting group were consuming compared to the other group. So we do lose some granularity there and not actually knowing what people were eating. And as you said, the overall dropout rate was, you know, quite high, albeit probably reasonable in a behavioral type of intervention trial. But I think to me, that just reflects overall, just how difficult it is for, you know, individuals in real life to maintain diets. Dieting is difficult. Yeah, behavior change is hard, even with quite regular coaching. All right, Paxson. So what do you want listeners to take away from our discussion today? So I think the main learning point here is, first off, that diet's really important in the management of diabetes, and, and we, we know that. But when I look at the results of this trial, I feel like this is still fairly new and not something that I'm necessarily going to go around recommending to everyone. First, because we don't really have a lot of data supporting it, and second, because 
I think that there's often low-hanging fruit already with patients' diets that we can talk to them about before we start getting into some of the real nitty-gritty of these dieting strategies. But in a patient who struggles with a traditional diet and is really aiming for weight loss and for improved A1C control, I feel like this gives us license to be a bit more creative in the way we talk to them about their diet. And potentially, in the right patient, doing something similar to this puts some control back in their hands, which could be quite appreciated. I think that medications will always remain a crucial part of blood sugar control. But overall, what I take away from here is that we should be willing to be a bit more innovative in the way that we study lifestyle changes. We should be able to be a bit more creative and try to find different ways to give patients options in how they can go about improving their overall health. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that last statement that you said, right? It's so easy for us to say, go on a diet, lose 30 pounds, exercise five times a week. But if we can find ways that makes that easier for people, so, you know, you can eat what you want to eat on three out of the seven days or five out of the seven days, and on two of those days, just restrict your calories down to the diets we described here, people are probably more likely to be able to do that and gives them the control to say, well, maybe Wednesday's not the day I'm going to do it. Maybe it's going to be Thursday today because yesterday was a crappy day. And and so I, I completely agree with you on that sentiment that this is a neat study to suggest different ways to go about diet options. All right, options for everything. Okay, so that brings our papers to a close and time to get to what I know is your favorite section, as you've made clear in the past. Uh, we're getting now into the good stuff segment. So Kieran, tell us what you're reading about. Well, Paxton, I was reading a neat commentary in JAMA that was talking about prescriptions of antibiotics and where the problems are coming from when it comes to inappropriate prescriptions. First of all, I was shocked to find out that about 80 million prescriptions annually for antibiotics are given without an appropriate indication in the United States. 80 million. And those would be things for like viral upper respiratory tract infections. And so this commentary on the backbone of that statement discusses a study that looked at urgent care and retail clinics. This is a sector of U.S. healthcare that is rapidly growing, in part because it's so convenient to have same-day service for patients and it often costs less on an insurance and out-of-pocket than an ER visit does. But these particular sectors of the healthcare, these urgent care clinics and retail clinics, are shown in this study to be a huge source of these inappropriate prescriptions of antibiotics. And the commentary goes so far as to suggest that this is probably financially motivated, the evils of money driving our uh, prescription of antibiotics. And so it makes the traditional interventions that we have about reducing inappropriate prescribing less effective when the incentives to do so are misaligned. Money talks, as the old saying goes, and I thought we should talk about it today on the Good Stuff segment. That is a pretty sobering article. And if they are true with that hypothesis, it certainly is just another example of how uh, competing interests in healthcare can really undermine what's the common good. What did you read about, Paxson? Oh, so I had a similarly happy article to talk about today. So you know, Kieran, that I work in general internal medicine, but a big part of my practice is in addiction medicine. And I was reading a pair of articles today that I thought were quite interesting. So as an addiction physician, I often get asked by friends and family again, my perspective on the imminent legalization of marijuana that's happening in Canada. And that's a pretty nuanced subject, and I can talk at length about it. But one thing that I find really interesting is the debate around the health effects of cannabis is pretty polarizing. And one thing that 
often gets people quite emotional on one side or the other is the idea of whether cannabis addiction is a real thing. So I read a pair of articles today were actually written by a psychologist out of Calgary, and one of them is entitled, Cannabis Addiction is Not Heroin Addiction, But That Doesn't Make It Any Less Real. And I think these are really measured descriptions of the effects of cannabis, the potential positive effects in cannabis on mental health and pain and other issues, as well as some of the, the negative effects, and describe quite nicely the fact that some people do find themselves using cannabis pattern that you would describe as addiction. And I think that he makes a very, very articulate point that just because it isn't heroin addiction doesn't mean that some people don't suffer with this. And, and he pulls from his own experiences in describing that. It's a, they're, they're well-written articles, and I think that they really do provide uh, important perspective uh, in this ongoing cannabis debate. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. We'll see how that unfolds in Canada as it becomes legal and probably will hopefully come to the forefront a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Well, Kieran, thanks so much for joining us today on The Rounds Table. It's uh, always a pleasure to chat. Always a pleasure to be on the show. Um, thanks for having me. All right. Take care. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verba. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.